And welcome to another Echopunk Salon, which is designed as an improvised conversation where together we try to explore the meaning of life, happiness, and the universe, or in this case, what happens when the body and the mind are no longer considered separate entities? Uh, a potentially wild and deep subject for us to explore. Our format, uh, I, I, I sorry, I have to uh, agree with Scott here. The answer is always 42. The, the real issue is what is the question? And of course, that will be what we try and struggle to get at today. Uh, we, we don't really have a much structure other than uh, when we have numbers over 10, we ask people to use the Zoom raise your hand function. Although uh, hot pursuits and interventions are always welcome. And we like to start our uh, salons uh, with a provocation. We usually invite one member to you know, present something that could be seen as provocative or counterintuitive or something really to just get our thoughts going. Um, and Merle, uh, uh, thankfully, has volunteered to be today's provocateur. Um, so without any further ado, although I'll welcome uh, uh, Zeno in his wonderful dinosaur costume, looking brilliant as always, my lad. Um, I again, I think the concept today of mind meets matter is meant to be as sprawling as we usually do. But Merle, I'm, I'm curious... Given that it's already a provocative concept, how you might uh, try to provoke us further. So please, take it away. Well, I'll actually just start by bypassing that debate and saying that mind and body are one. Uh, and my provocation is actually that your digital mind and your digital body are also one with your mind and body. Your face being projected on the screen to everyone else, your social media presence, any video game characters you create, uh, your extension of your memory and mind, whether through email or word processing, are all one. And that you as a person encompass all of those things. Right on. And I mean, does that mean that we are such a myriad of selves as to be drawn apart or stretched into all these different directions or are you arguing that there's a kind of unity in spite of us being stretched in all these directions that fundamentally we come back to the true essence of ourselves both digital and analog i i think there is a unity in the sprawl and i think regardless of any digital technologies uh you're going to be sprawling you're going to have daydreams you're going to have uh you know uncontrollable biological activity there's always <laughs> going to be parts that are uh not necessarily voluntary or within your control but yet a part of who you are right on it, it sort of gives a glimpse as to how coherence uh, uh, can be achieved in the digital realm, although I feel mostly incoherent when, when I'm on the internet. Jan, uh, you've raised your hand, please. Yeah, I am in, uh, very incon incoherent myself, uh, indeed. I have a question for Merle, or for the group maybe, with regards to where those impulses are coming from, right? I love the fact, Merle, that you uh, extend the self also to a digital self. But, you know, where do you even get that signal or the impulse from to create a digital self? What makes you actually sit down and type the things into your computer that create that digital self? Uh, 
And um, I don't want to say Jesse lectured me, but he did lecture me that we all have already read the book, The Body Keeps Score. And if we did, then we have also learned that everything in our bodies is biology, chemistry, neurons fire signals. So although you would expect me to, um, you know, call more onto the Holy Spirit, right, in order to guide us, I want to claim that, you know, my suspicion is that the bodies basically steer the minds. Scott, you want to jump in? Well, I just, I guess, based on the question that had set up this whole thing and the discussion of an extension into the digital space and uh, I guess my question and my thought is, I mean, you assume there's a split between mind and body, right? I think even in the statement that set up this whole salon assumed that in Jan's statement, the mind, the, the, the body controls the mind. I mean, I, I just believe that they are one and the same. There is no distinction between the two that, you know, brain function is physical function, mental activity is physical activity in the brain. And there is no pixie dust. There is no separate sort of, um, I mean, if we were to get technical about it, I'd be more of a materialist than a dualist when it comes to <laughs> the, the soul and the mind and stuff. So, Jan, I would argue that it is there is no distinction between the two. It's it's a false creation that we create to try to understand what's going on, but it is all one and the same. And that and that when we extend ourselves into the digital space, and just to go back to the first provocation, I would also argue that that is a construct. It's not truly ourselves. It's like a it's uh, something we create in response to stimuli from outside. It's not actually something that is, it's not a true extension of ourselves. It is a, a false construct. And, and I think, you know, this notion of we, I think here are ready to accept that the body and mind is one, but I think it's worth pointing out that the rest of our society does not, that our laws, our culture, even our institutions are all built on this sort of assumption that the body and mind are separate. And I think Going back to Murley's point, I think the digital world is erasing that distinction. It's allowing us to understand that there is an interaction between the body and the mind. You know, as Jan's saying that the body controls the mind. But then, Jan, you also asked, you know, how conscious are we of our digital selves and creating our digital selves? And, and Jeanette, this is where I want to bring you into the conversation. Because I, I sort of said something to Jeanette on the weekend, which I've been thinking about, which... You know, I declared that nobody on Twitter was real, that everybody on Twitter was just an act, a persona, that they're personas that belong to real people. But once those people go on to Twitter, then all of a sudden they stop being real and they start being characters using hyperbole and outrage and all sorts of other language. I, I assume, Jeanette, you want to push back on that, but I'd be curious to kind of hear your thoughts. And you're unmuted, by the way. I'm, I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts, Jeanette, on to go back to Jan's question of how people construct themselves and in particularly how people construct themselves on Twitter. Right. Because I'm still of the mind that it's all just a game. People are just acting and creating personas. But maybe you want to argue the opposite, that people are being an extension of themselves on Twitter. The way Murley was saying there's an inherent coherence to all of this. I, I'm curious, Jeanette, to hear sort of where you fall on that. Well, I think I think it's really tempting to dichotomize. I think, you know, it's interesting just in the course of the conversation so far, a couple of these distinctions have come up. The idea that 
the mind is localized in the brain. But of course, the mind extends far beyond the brain. I mean, the gut is more than half of our mind. The idea that the mind is identical with the self, but the mind seems to extend beyond the self. So I think a lot of the points that Murley is, you know, just, and there, I guess the corollary would be the microbiotic community in your gut um, that has uh, uh, quite a lot to say about um, how your mind actually plays out. Um, are, it, I think with this, the notion of the Twitter persona, I would argue, how is that any different than the persona that we construct for face-to-face interactions uh you know again i think there's this there is a a desire that to create these binaries and say oh there's my authentic self which is some kind of hidden inner self and then there's the persona i present to the world but i i don't think you can draw any kind of clear boundary there the the you know i think that's one of the interesting offshoots of the digital self is that it does make explicit the way that we are always engaged in uh, constructing a self socially, um, that uh, there is kind of this model of selfhood, which is introspective, is connected to interiority, you know, often was um, worked out in writing classically, but uh, but that's, that is one version and that we, as social creatures, more often um, we are, constructing that self in social interactions um, and social media, I don't think is any different. The scale is obviously a bit different. Um, there's, there's a big difference between working out who you are in a community of 60 people versus millions of people that you may never meet in person. Well, I love that you, sorry, uh, Jesse, I love that you um, called up uh, social creatures here, Jeanette. And uh, Dean, if you don't mind me uh, addressing you, uh, I'd be really, really curious on on your perspective here, because let me also briefly introduce you. I don't know you well, right? But we met when you were kind of developing and designing logistics and fulfillment centers somewhere outside of Toronto. And Brian now told me that you immerse yourself deep in AI. So... You know, while you also, and forgive me for you know sharing so much here, um, are apparently a lovely host of parties, right? Shower your guests in <laughs> champagne and uh, provide very physical experiences when you have friends over. You are also really, really head heavy uh, living in the clouds, right? So, so how do you make sense of the mind matter and particularly the digital social aspect of the human expansion, so to say. So thanks for the thanks for the invite. Um, hope you can all hear me nice and clearly. We um, can hear you beautifully. So beautifully. I think what's always what I find interesting is, especially nowadays, we've got we've we touched on AI. Um, we've touched on we've had social media now for a good number of years, and yet every time these new digital technologies come out to try and replicate or replace, they never really seem to do it. Um, I think one of the most interesting factors is if you look at what Tesla's trying to do with self-driving, there is just something that they're struggling with that they just can't get it over the line. And you could say, I mean, the amount of computing and data, and yet when you're driving a car, there's that instinctive feeling 
if someone is going to do something, you're getting responses from your body. There's just, as I said, there's a lot that supports this whole thing that the mind and body are almost inseparable because you have such an instinctive pulse that happens with that. Look how social medias have struggled to replace interactions. In fact, research shows, I think, that we've never been more disconnected and lonely. We've just gone through a major pandemic. This was supposed to be the golden age of... Um, uh, uh, virtual reality, augmented reality, social medias, yet somehow, what did we clamor back for after a pandemic? In-person concerts, in-person eating, in-person events. So I think, what's, I think what's always missed sometimes, and I mean, I'm, I'm a technologist, I've got technology everywhere, we, there's, there's this constant thing that shows that we can't just simplify everything into ones and zeros. There is something that we cannot fully understand or describe that either is how the, how the brain and the mind works, the body works, the energy signatures we give, how we process all of this. And that I think that we should not be looking and, and sort of as a sort of a half little summary there in my look at it is that all of these things that we're ex experiencing and exposing ourselves to new tech should never be about replacement. There should be about an improvement or augmentation because surprise, surprise, 10,000 years down the line, we still want to be in the same physical space as one another. We still want to be interacting with one another. And so I think the, the, the important you know, views here is how can technology help and assist with that? Um, Neuralink is not going to suddenly turn us all into these sort of blobs that are going to be behind a digital screen that's going to replace everything. Um, I, I think there's a lot more than just, um, we, 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 we oversimplify, I think, how all of this stuff works. So I think that's just sort of my <laughs> long-winded introduction there from well, a technological perspective. I, I think what you, you evoked quite brilliantly is this concept of embodied intelligence that you kind of need the body to achieve the intelligence. And, and, and the way in which embodied intelligence is sort of running in parallel to artificial intelligence, I think reinforces your point, Dean, about our desire to connect with each other, our desire to be in person with each other. And Sharita, as our sort of resident cyborg, uh, you've got your hand up, but you know we, we've sort of in previous salons talked about this intersection between technology and humanity. So I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on sort of where the mind and the body meet, but also how it extends into the digital via either extensions or persona or the other concepts that we've been sort of uh, wrestling with. I think um, I think where where I'm coming from, and I I would agree with Dean, is that we tend to try and simplify in order to understand. So, the easiest way to simplify something is if you say it's the same or is it different. So that's like the zero and the ones, and. If you remember a, a while ago, I, I used the term cognitive miser. And I think that most human beings, when push comes to shove, become cognitive misers. So in other words, in our adoption of the online world, we want to make it similar to the meat space, you know, 
in, you know, in real life. When actual fact, it is partly like real life, but it's also missing things from real life so that we have to learn how this is translated in another media or in another form or you know people talk about multiple intelligences i'm not sure i buy that but we are our world never mind we even you know even animals in the world are much more complex than we have the language for or for the most part, people have even the cognitive capacity for. So therefore, we step back and make dualities. The soul versus, you know, the, the rest of humanity. The, the mind versus the body. You know, the zeros and the ones. And, and this is where, you know, I think the ecosystem approach still allows for that level of simplicity or synthesis, but without resorting to the binary, without resorting to the simplistic twofold. And that's where I think it's, it's interesting to think of some of the words that we've already brought up already in terms of like biota and bacteria and the body and the mind and the digital self and the persona. These sort of, in, in my brain, come together as a kind of ecosystem of identity that we use to try to understand who we are with, you know, I think Dean's point where context is so important. Hence why when we're in person with other people, that feels somehow as if it's uniting these different cells versus I'm still struck with Murley's, you know, original provocation that there is an inherent coherence to our digital selves. And if anything, I think Murley, that speaks to your kind of aesthetic as a designer right? That you're approaching this from a design perspective. But I, I feel that there's a, a, an interesting conflict that each of us wrestle with when we think about which self am I going to be here? Whether it's at a party, whether it's at a concert, whether it's on a social platform, or whether it's in a, a, a meeting or, or an online meeting. You know, Jan, you had your hand up. So please uh, uh, bail me out from this ramble. But yeah. I'm, I'm curious, you know, as, as we move forward, uh, you know, we, we, we may all agree that the body and mind is one. But to Sharita's point, how do we conceptualize and present it in a way that allows it to still be accessible in a world that wants to simplify and, and reduce? Yeah, I think, you know, the digital self, um, you know, I said that I liked the fact that Merle uh, expanded the conversation to this, right? And that we included the digital self here. At the same time, and this is a little, um, you know, embarrassing and TMI, uh, I have two digital selves on two dating platforms. And let's just say it's not going great, right? And, um, you know, that, you know, has a lot to do with me. I am the problem. But you miss out on a lot on dating platforms. You don't smell, right? You don't feel, you don't kind of sense body movement, all kinds of things, right? Which are important uh, signals for a human being uh, to pick up on. So um, while I like the idea of extending the, 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 the self um, to a digital one, I don't really know or see that happen. Because Early, I'm missing, I'm missing too many, too many signals. Sorry. 
Merle, do you want to come back to what you were arguing before about coherence, which, you know, I, I think you were making a logical argument, but you'll notice that those of us who are older, we struggle with finding that coherence. Do, do you think that there's either a literacy or an awareness to, to, to conceiving of the digital self as a unified idea versus the rest of us, I think, struggle with that uh, uh, ease or to even use Sharita's notion of the cognitive miser, that one is just oneself in these digital environments and there's not a lot of effort put into it. You're just being who you are. Well, I think that the literacy uh, is mainly in making a distinction for yourself between what uh, the context is and how real something is. Like we've talked about how um, you're, there's always something missing in the digital context, whether that be sort of like a heuristic knowledge of, you know, when a car is going to make a sketchy lane change or uh, whether someone is, uh, you know, how much of their self they're presenting on a dating app. Uh, I think that's that's true of all digital platforms and, and interactions that there's always going to be a level of anonymity and... Uh, a lack of uh, perception or projection of someone's self. Uh, and I think that that's okay when you approach it from the perspective that those that you're keeping those things in mind, that it is a different context. You're not face-to-face. -face. And understanding that allows you to navigate those uh, different settings and uh, contexts uh, more readily. But I still think that having uh, yourself out there is part of your expression. It may be in a different medium. It may be in, you know, less of a physical and more of a uh, representative format. But uh, just because there are aspects missing doesn't mean that it's not part of who you are and how you're expressing yourself. Mm -hmm. I love that, Murley, because you said part of an expression, right? Or it is a part of yourself. And um, I love that notion because we are, we all are many things, right? But not all of the things at the same time. And um, I haven't thought of it this way, but I was even wondering as you spoke, whether we've got um, fractured identities that almost kind of exist like, you know, pieces in the world that create a mosaic if you kind of put them together. Or, so. or a stained glass story. And, and here's where I'll acknowledge that Jeanette has been raising her hand uh, partly because the puppies make it a little difficult for her to raise her digital hand. <laughs> and Dean, uh, you're coming up right after Jeanette. Go ahead, Jeanette. I just, you know, to build on what Merle was saying, I wanted to point that the word that everyone throws around today associated with, you know, putting yourself out there digitally is creator. And that uh, many more of us are creators than perhaps was common, let's say, 30 years ago. But what I want to draw attention to is that the experience of those who were artists or makers of some sort um, is, a, is a kind of an interesting way into this body-mind dichotomy because, of course, cre creation, the act of creation is not one of purely conscious control. 
Um, and it's not necessarily one of, of, of conscious coherence, the body, um, and, and it's all of its involuntary process and, and all of the things that, you know, happen in the body that escape our conscious control is as much a part of the act of creation as anything else. And so that the coherence of the creation doesn't necessarily come from our rational thinking mind. Um, it, it comes from that part of the mind um, that, that is largely unconscious, I would argue, that that's really, you know, the muse is the sort of traditional way of figuring that, that, um, and that, that is something that is not only unconscious, but possibly, again, bigger than ourselves, possibly collective in some way and not just personal. That's all I wanted to add. Dean, please. Um, to Jan, one, I thought of another way to also look at how you can see a digital, an extension, uh, that your digital is your extension of who you are. Um, I think we all here can understand that you can listen to a sound recording and it can elicit a response. And if you think about it today, sound recordings have basically been smushed down to ones and zeros with a sound wave that is generated out of two speakers. Um, it is a technically a flat approximation of what was recorded. And yet what's interesting about our brains is they're very good at filling in the blanks. And so much like you listening to a sound recording of somebody else and you getting that feeling, your digital persona effectively is that sound recording. You're putting out a bunch of digital stimuli. What you're not necessarily seeing is the blanks that the other person on the other side is going to fill in. And so if you view your extensions of your digital self as little mini recordings, um, they do form a part of you because you've made a choice to of what you're going to be putting out there. What you need to understand, of course, is the limitations of that uh, expression and that a big part of that is actually how the other person's um, mind and body is going to fill in the blanks based on their experiences and reconstruct what they want to reconstruct, which is why I think we see so many struggles in digital spaces where we put how many times we put something out in text and someone construes a tone based on their interpretation of that so your multiple profiles are actually just little recordings that you're putting out there and whoever is going to consume them they're playing back but it is an extension of you you have made the choices in within that platform and you've put that out there you're just maybe not liking the fact that it's not you know uh, all-encompassing and to, to highlight the irony you, none of you ever met me in person except maybe Yun. this is a digital extension of myself you're watching a live recording of ones and zeros and your brain's filling in the bits but you can't deny that this is an extension of who i am and my mind and my body as i'm reacting and and this is where i, I will give you props dean for having such a great microphone because it very <laughs> much helps from a human perspective to get that kind of high quality audio, which then further fosters a sense of being in the same space or getting to know you, right? And starting to trust you and 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 listening to you in a way that I think is, is really powerful. But you also, Dean, evoked the power of the mixtape, right? That for those of us of a certain vintage, there was nothing more vulnerable and yet defining than to give someone a mixtape 
so that I've selected these songs for you as, as a way to express ourselves. And similarly, I, I've gotten into the habit, not anymore since uh, Twitter became X, but I used to look at what people liked on Twitter as a way of getting a sense of who they were, right? To your point about digital breadcrumbs. So I, I think this both speaks to the dynamism of ourself, but also the transcendence of ourself, that who we are continues to come through, through what we like, through what we post, through what we do. So Jan and Scott, both of you have your hands up. So please jump in. Well, Scott's first, you go, Scott. Well, what Dean was saying reminds me a lot of, um, I've been reading the Naomi Klein book, Doppelganger, recently, mm -hmm. where she talks about only interactions online with, Naomi Wolf. And I mean, to Dean's point, I mean, basically what you put out there is no longer you in some sense once it's released. And then, but there's also the risk of it being um, appropriated, misinterpreted, misdirected, or, you know, uh, associated with the wrong person. And so, I mean, in, Na in Naomi Klein's case, everybody started thinking that she was Naomi Wolf. And so all the negative sort of all the negative uh, uh, sort of attitudes were being directed her way. And, you know, her words were being twisted. Her work was being twisted. Everything was being twisted. And so she actually, in reading the book, starts, starts to talk about questioning herself and questioning her identity and also questioning her own mind because that sort of extending herself out into that space, it was coming back the other way. And her own identity was being manipulated by the, the ecosystem purely because there was this doppelganger and Naomi Wolf out there. So it, it's fascinating. Like the idea you, you put these recordings out there and it's up to the other person, you know, you may not like what somebody's going to interpret on that, but then there's also the impact to yourself, to your own mind and to your own identity and that feedback loop that is, you know, incredibly powerful. I mean, it almost questions the status of the individual itself. Are we right. individuals? Right. right. Or are we extensions of our larger community and the values and messages of that community? Jan, are we a, are, yeah, exactly. Are we a product? Are we created by what the community thinks we are? Right. And, you know, if that starts to get corrupted and doesn't align with who we are. I, I love that example, Scott, because that would be the similar thing as if, you know, Jesse's name was not Jesse, but imagine he was Jochen Peterson, right? And everyone would then mistake him for Jordan Peterson. I mean, it could not be right. I, for the record, though, I would change my name. Further, I, I but, would give but, up my name if that was my but, doppelganger. But, yes. uh, mis mis misattribution due to uh, conflicting digital or rivalry digital personalities. I think that is a really interesting uh, point here, Scott. Um, with regards to um yeah the mind i wanted to you know and this really came to me spontaneously here i just remembered as we were talking a, a black mirror episode i don't know whether anyone has watched that there is a black mirror episode i forgot the title which basically shows um the fate of two women who uh basically are i think old or fatally ill and technology at that point is so advanced that uh, you know there is a microchip in their brain, and for some, you know, somehow can, they can extract their self into the digital world, and they can consciously decide whether this is where they want to continue to live on forever, and they make that decision, and um, are seemingly happy. And when that show was over, I turned the TV off, and I felt a little 
weird. I sat here in front of the TV and thought, hmm, you know, how do I feel about this? Is it, would I, would I give up my physicality even, you know, if I was facing death for the benefit of having a purely digital existence? W would I do this? Would that be worthwhile? Although the larger question is, could you do it? And let's if we're just, arguing, just, but if we're arguing the body and mind is one, yeah. then, you know, they could promise you, Jan, we'll upload you into the machine, but you just experienced death. I would not, I, I don't know whether I would believe it. Exactly. Believe it. Andrea, please. You're on mute, Andrea. Yeah, I, think. I got it. Yeah, you know, it's funny you brought that up because I was thinking the same thing. It's like, after you pass away, you still have this digital footprint. So does that person still exist kind of just for people that didn't know them originally, but there's still their work is out there, their persona is out there, but the body is not. I mean, I still get Facebook friend requests from a friend of mine who passed away like 10 years ago, which is kind of creepy. Terrible. But, yeah, that's awful. That's awful. So I, I don't know. It's it goes on, but it's it's not real. It is kind of spooky. I don't know about you guys, but how Facebook is becoming a kind of cemetery. It is a problem. Because I have, well, no, you say it's a problem. Facebook calls it a business. I because to memorialize people's profiles, that allows them to get into the death care industry. And I now have a number of dead or deceased Facebook friends. And I know people who regularly post on their profiles the same way that I might go to a cemetery and put a rock on a family member's tombstone. I know people who have lost their children and get a reminder every year, hey, it's so-and-so's birthday, wish them a happy birthday. And these people have reached out to Facebook, begged that those accounts get deactivated because it is a painful experience to no avail. And, and for the record, Facebook will allow you to deactivate such posts, but not easily. And you have to be the estate and it has to go through a complicated factor. But Facebook is very deliberately getting into the death care industry because funeral homes have been making tons of money for years. And if Facebook can create digital memorials, that becomes very powerful for them. Now, Scott, I did see you raise your hand. Please, by all means, jump into the conversation. Well, you just bummed me out with that whole Facebook getting into the death industry. <laughs> I mean, um, but just to, to go back to Jan, there's a thought experiment, which is interestingly enough, one that my son's been playing with quite a bit recently, which is the teleporter, that are the Star Trek teleporter experiment, which, which, you know, if you think about it, if you are, are, you know, you're here on Earth and you're teleported to Mars, right? It deconstructs your body and recreates you on the other end. Is that you that's recreated at the other end? Is, will that be you going forward? Or let's say there's a mistake and somehow in the whole transfer over, the you that remains stays and there's a new you on that, on Mars. Is it the same you? Are you the same? Like, how do you resolve that situation, right? If the physical body is destroyed and one new one is created, are you the same person or are you a different creation when you are teleported to that new place? So Merle from Universe C137, do you, do you have an answer for Scott? Uh, I don't have an answer for Scott. I mean, I think that comes back to what Jan was saying about Black Mirror. Uh, there's another Black Mirror episode where uh, someone gets a digital clone of their mind in order to perform 
household smart home tasks. And because that digital clone is a clone, knows what that person likes and, you know, does in their daily routine, they're able to perform those duties with perfection. Uh, and yet it's about the torturous um, aspect for that clone in this essentially bubble uh, trapped as a simulation. And there's a lack of autonomy. So I think there's always going to be a philosophical uh, conflict between a, a digital clone or a representation or recreation that has maybe a certain level of consciousness, but not autonomy. Um, but what I was uh, trying to come back to was, um, I've actually entirely lost it now because I've started thinking about Black Mirror, but... Um, <laughs> But so I'll, while you grab your thought, it, it strikes me that we haven't really talked about authenticity yet. We've danced around authenticity. We've thought about what makes it real. But, you know, th that's another interesting side to this, right? Of who is the true self? Is it the self that's embodied? And Dean threw up his hand. So we'll throw to Dean and then Merle, you can come back once you've gathered your thoughts. Yeah. So first of all, my answer on that, because Star Trek, I think, is actually in somewhere in their episodes have actually dealt with this because I think they created an episode where there was a clone made because of a transporter accident. I think the simple answer is no, it is not the same. Because I think if we look at what the universe is, which is chaos, um, uh, every little, what, who am I? I am this collection of energy, which is my mind and body combined in these particles in this space. And I cannot believe that you can replicate exactly this in another space. You have now changed even one little iota and therefore it is not the same. It, and you know, there's so many times that we're allowed facsimiles in documents and whatever that we've agreed that it's okay, but it's never the original, which is why I think, so to answer is no, I don't think it's um, uh, identical because all the way down to that and to sort of launch into that i would say identity is going to be the biggest challenge of the next decade because while we're talking about all these things about what defines you know the connection mind body and the the intermesh of digital what is being done very rapidly with generative ai is the ability to replicate many aspects that perceive to be real i think it's I think three seconds is enough for them to take your voice sample and uh, a hacker spammer can phone your parents and use your voice to get them to send money. It is not perfect, but it is getting better. So um, identity management. And then to me, that always then rolls back. Like, how do we, who am I? And I think it does have to go back to the fact that there's something about me that is a signature that somehow we're going to encapsulate. I think we do it with retina scans effectively because we try to pick which part of our bodies are the most unique and the most difficult to replicate. And I think potentially somewhere the answer lies in there. Although Dean, you brought up something that, that also we haven't touched upon yet that I think is fascinating, which is the space-time continuum. Because on the one hand, we're assuming the body and mind is what it is because the body exists in space. But then you add time to it, and am I the same person I was yesterday? 
Am I the same person that I was last year? The answer certainly might be no. And I think that's another different aspect of who we are and how we are. And this is where I'll note that Scott and Jan both had their hands up. But Merle, I'm going to throw to you and give you a chance to finish your previous thought. But this is where I will also, conscious of time, say, hey, Priscilla, Christian, Oksana, even Neil, if either of you guys want a chance to wade into this conversation, we've got about 15 minutes left to play in this period. But Merle, please uh, 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 share with us that thought that went off the tracks earlier. Well, I think uh, it actually sort of corresponds to what Dean was saying about identity. Uh, what I was thinking was about how Facebook as uh, in, you know, the business of uh, death services uh, and how we're actually becoming more dependent on all this technology like Google Photos or even just your smartphone. And if we are so dependent on the ones and zeros, is that not a part of our identity? Uh, if if we're depending on it for, you know, our our body through space and time, or at least uh, some recollection of that through photos, or our Facebook timeline, if we are so dependent on those things, does that not become part of who we are? Uh, and that's kind of the point of the, the, the cyborg, right? That we are integrating technology into our bodies in addition to them being extensions of our bodies. And, and I think that goes back to Dean's uh, a rather correct assertion that identity is going to be the real sticky issue in the next 10 years, in part because of increased diversity, but also the potential for, for fraud, for impersonation, for stealing identity. Jan, go ahead. Yeah, so you uh, mentioned authenticity here, uh, Jesse, and we've been talking about clones, and then I went off on a tangent here, falling in love with my own clone in the chat here. And I think, you know, the challenge for us here is uh, the illusion of singularity, right? We, we believe or want, uh, you know, our experience to be singular. And, uh, you know, in human development, right, I think until we are three or four years old, we believe that we are the center of the universe. And as you too put it, the world revolves around us, but um, it doesn't. So, you know, there might be a, a bit of a conflict there with the singularity here. And uh, I want to also bring forward a thought that Sharida left in the chat before she left. She's asking there whether we create for the sake of immortality, right? Uh, in order to uh, leave a legacy. Um, so, um, and, and I, I believe that is true, right? Why do so many middle-aged people um, try to write a book or, you know, hire a ghostwriter to write a book for them when they can't afford it? Uh, leave something, you know, make yourself immortal, uh, if not through your genes, then through something else. So I think that is an important aspect here as well. But I like the, the, the thought of the human experience being singular, right? Or are there multiple parallel, you know, worlds or universes? Um, I'm, you know that too I don't know um, I'm quite fond of the idea that every time we make a major decision in our lives an alternate universe is created where we made the opposite decision and it you know uh, enables an entire tree of existence that we may not perceive but certainly does st uh, still exist mm -hmm. but I, I think to go back to my you know uh, uh, rejection of the idea that we could upload our consciousness into the machine because you're dual meaning there that there is no singularity 
also suggests that there is no AI singularity. That there will not be some thinking machine or some living uh, uh, artificial entity unless it has a body. Because you need the body to have the mind. Hence, if you upload your consciousness, that's just death. And while the AI chatbot that replicates you after your death may allow your family and friends to think you're still there, from your perspective, life has ended. And, right. and I think, you know, there, there's a side to that that is uh, uh, difficult for us to comprehend in, in that we only ever experience the present. We only ever experience today, right? I, I can sort of remember what it's like to be a child, but I'm no longer a child. So I spend most of my time trying to remember what it's like to live today. And that's where I agree with Sharita and your argument. And I just killed my microphone. Still dead. You're back. You're back. Good. I'm not sure I want to be immortal. In fact, I kind of feel that the essence of my mind, the essence of my body, is that it is mortal. That it is aging. And that I will die. And, you know, I, I wrote a post uh, a few years ago on the ethics of immortality. And it kind of made me fear, like, what if you're 80 years old and they sentence you to 100 years in prison, as the former president of the United States may get? Does that mean that they will keep you alive to ensure that you finish your prison sentence? Like, what a hellscape, right? To me, I welcome death. I want death. Death is the whole thing that makes life worth living. So that's why I, I similarly to where you reject singularity in the self, I reject the notion of immortality. We are who we are because we're going to die. And I think that's important to sort of keep in mind. Well, Not to, you know, kill the conversation there. Please, yeah, go ahead. Pyramids, pyramids and, you know, palaces and all this thing. I agree with you, as would probably fellow Stoic Scott Southern, right? It is good um, because the fact that our time is limited gets us going to accomplish what we want to in the time that we have uh, left. But, I mean, look around. People, you know, erect statues or monuments of themselves in the form of books, you know, houses, cars, even roller skates. Or Scott, to your point, children. Or children. And then those statues get torn down, right, yeah. in the future. Right, they're, they're, they're impermanent. Um, they just, so, uh, you know, sorry, go ahead, Jesse. Well, I was going to say, the, the one thing we've sort of touched around today, but I want to come back uh, uh, just to sort of he hear your thoughts. Chatbots. Because, you know, where I think Dean successfully argued that identity is going to be a hot topic in the next decade. I think part of that is going to be the role of chatbots. And I don't mean chatbots as obvious chatbots. I mean the way in which LinkedIn is already prompting me on the response I should send to someone. Or the way that Gmail is now automatically giving me prompts to finish my email. At a certain point, yes, I am going to employ a Jesse Hirsch chatbot, which will handle basic levels of communication. But at any point that that communication becomes important or interesting or complicated, I will slip into that hybrid. And I think we're going to get to a point in which people won't be able to tell when you're using your chatbot or not. 
that that chatbot will customize to your use of language, your personality, and will allow you to carry on conversations that you may not have the time to do, but then prompt you, right? When your prospective Tinder date says, hey, yes, what time would you like to meet? And you need to actually step in to do that little bit of finessing. I, I mean, that complicates things in a way that is not as entirely clear cut as we've been sort of assuming. Right. And it goes back to the notion of the cyborg. At what point do we embrace hybrid models that allow us a certain flexibility as ourselves, but also deceive and manipulate other people into thinking that it is ourselves? I mean, outside of the ethics of that, which I think are quite questionable, I'm just thinking of the optics of when and well, when and where people will be able to detect that and whether that'll sort of embody Dean's argument about how identity is going to become such a hot button issue because now we won't be able to tell whether we are bots or not when dealing with each other. Thoughts, provocations, future scenarios in which you think this will take place. I mean, I just can't understand why one would want to do that. Right, that's to, that's to the economy around time, right? You know, yes. do, you, do you, you don't want to speak to people? You want to, you have better things to do than talk to individuals, and so you set up the chatbot. I mean, if that was the or case. You're, or you're socially awkward, and maybe the chatbot would do a better job from a business perspective. Yeah, maybe I'm a bit of a traditionalist, but I just don't think it would be a, a replacement. Jeanette, I, think you'd, I think you'd have to identify Jeanette, you had your hand up in the physical sense. I just wanted to make two quick points. I mean, these, this crisis about identity happens every time there's a revolution in media, especially towards mass media. I mean, I, my dissertation was all about print epistemology, the way that the advent of commercial printing changed not just how we thought, but how we conceived of ourselves. So I think we're going... We're lucky enough to live through that moment right now, which is kind of thrilling for me personally. Secondly, I just, we keep accidentally referring to these Borges stories. You kind of indirectly referenced the Garden of Forking Paths with the decision-making, but the one that came up in your last thing was The Immortal, which is this wonderful story, which posits that physical immortality is the death of identity. Because identity by definition is circumscribed, mortality puts a limit that creates an individual identity. If you live forever, you will be everybody. You will have every experience and you will be everybody. That's all I wanted to add. The inclusive God. The in eternal <laughs> life, paradise, the afterlife, heaven. That's really. I, I would just like to say that uh, identity is sort of dependent on others because uh, whether you're dead or not people are going to remember you uh, whether through your facebook profile or historical writings uh, and sure you can have a, a sense of self but uh, your identity is largely outward facing and it's about interactions you have with people and how they fill in the blanks whether from your facebook profile or from your handshake, or from the way you smell, uh, whether it's in-person or digital, uh, that identity is all 
constructed by how others are perceiving you and how you manipulate yourself in order for others to perceive you a certain way, whether consciously or unconsciously. Interesting. And, and I think there's something to be said about the context of that relativistic identity, right? And, and how digital the context is not always visible. I think you need a certain high level of literacy to read context in digital environments. And I think that's why, to go back to your original provocation, why the coherence is so obvious to you where the rest of us perhaps struggle. Dean, and then Jan. One quick thing. So pretend I have no, I have no arms and I pay somebody um, to write you a birthday card where in the 1950s, and you receive this message that I intended to get to you, and you never meet me, so you never understand how that message got to you. Does that change the quality of the message? And then by extension, why do you care if it's a chatbot, if I've programmed it? I, I think in a way, some of these questions are great, but at times they're I would say, I, I want to be mildly controversial and say they're irrelevant. I, I think there's going to be much of a different type of question, which to me, that's why I do believe it supports the fact that any form of digital outreach is part of my persona. Uh, if I send, if I, I can program something to send the Facebook API to send a message to you to wish you happy birthday on your exact birthday, you will interpret it as if I remembered. And I did put some thought into it. So at the end of the day, no harm, no foul. Um, but, and I think from that perspective, it's going to come down to what do you want? Do you want a chatbot? If you do, that's going to be part of who you are. If you don't, that's also going to be part of who you are. Yeah, I, I agree entirely. And, and Christian, just to respond to the headline you shared, this is where echopunks are visibly dissidents because the conversation we've had today runs counter to everything that Silicon Valley has been saying for decades now. So it does kind of present us in, in a uh, oppositional space, but you unmuted. So maybe you want to make the argument uh, in your own words. No. <laughs> <laughs> Jan. Why today? I'm, 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 I'm chiming in. I, um, and, and feel free to wrap us up at the same time, given the, the, the clock which, there, which I'm actually, which I'm doing and planning on doing. So I wanted to say I love uh, how Dean closed this on almost um, this whole thing being a question of choice, right? Why don't we leave it up to the individual, what the individual wants to do with their identity and how they want to carry this? The I have to say, you know, I just noticed the most profane thing in the last five minutes, Jesse. As you know, I've got problems with my foot and my foot really, really hurts right now. And you know what? That hurt of my foot is a signal. It's telling me something. And although I don't like the hurt, I like the fact that I'm, you know, feeling and experience stuff like that. So I personally would not want to live like a chatbot because I like... Um, you know, feeling uh, sensations on my skin, in my body. And, um, you know, that means a lot to me here. Yeah. It's, it's what makes you human. Right. I'm personally blown away by how today's uh, conversation evolved here. It went way further down into uh, the digital space than I was even anticipating it would be. And uh, it might warrant a, a, a second or edition on that topic, maybe slightly altered, 
but that was really really great and i could go on for another two or three hours now um thank you it was good well, and I think if anyone's interested in exploring this issue further, I would recommend the Tinder subreddit. Because the Tinder subreddit on Reddit is basically people deconstructing Tinder profiles and ironically gets into much of the same subject material as we did today, although for completely different reasons. Um, and I would also conclude by saying I reject the idea that I'm an individual. I'm not an individual. I'm a federation of bacteria. And this federation of bacteria uh, bids you all a happy Halloween and hopes you will join us next week for our salon on Getting in Touch, which is a natural follow-up on the idea of embodied intelligence that why do when we say getting in touch do we literally often mean physical contact and what are the benefits of that physical contact? Tune in, same bat time, same bat channel, next Tuesday at 11. Uh, and thanks again, everybody.